a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I hope you can't tell, but uh, man, I've got a humdinger of a cold going on now. So hopefully I'm not talking through too, through my nose a little too much. But uh, if I get sounding a little nasally, please, you know, bear with me. After all, it is cold and flu season. Aren't you at least a little bit afraid? All right, just checking. Hey, thanks for joining us. This is where we revel in wrong thing. This is where we try to sort out fact from fiction. Now, that doesn't mean that just because I said it or just because I read it or shared it with you, that somehow that is the truth and it cannot be challenged. The whole idea here is you and I are supposed to think for ourselves. And sometimes that means we're, gonna, we're not going to land on the same page. We're not going to be thinking exactly the same way. And here's the crazy part. That's fine. It's okay. We can disagree and the sun isn't going to, or the earth isn't going to tip off its axis and fall into the sun. It's, I know it's, uh, that's hard to believe in the way that uh, some people act, but you know, this is a free speech zone. And I mean that in the sense that you are free to hold your thoughts. I'm free to hold mine. All I'm trying to do is encourage you to think as clearly and independently as possible. What you do with the information that I share, well, really that's up to you. This program is made possible by great sponsors like HSLAmmo.com, also MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and GarageDoorProServices.com. Man, what a lot of stuff to, to cover today, too. I mean, I'm looking at all the different topics. I want to talk a little bit about the FBI and its zero-click surveillance. You know your government is keeping an eye on you. It's not just the social media companies. You think of something or you speak of something and boom, hey, well, there's an ad right there. Well, your government's paying pretty close attention too. We'll talk a little bit about that. We'll also discuss why we should have listened to George Washington when he warned us about the dangers of faction, by which he meant political parties. And Tom McAllister has a great, albeit unpopular, cure to our electoral woes. Talk a little bit about what happens when God is driven out of our civic life. Now that's working out for us. And a great article from Stephen Apolito on what he learned from his grandfather about money. I think we'll start with uh, Judge Napolitano. Judge Napolitano says, During the Trump administration, the FBI paid $5 million to an Israeli software company for a license to use its zero-click surveillance software called Pegasus. Now, zero-click refers to software that can download the contents of a target's computer or mobile device without the need for tricking the target into clicking on it. The FBI operated the software from a warehouse in New Jersey. Now, before revealing any of this to the two congressional intelligence committees which, to which the FBI reports, it experimented with the software. And the experiments apparently consisted of testing Pegasus by spying as in illegally and unconstitutionally, since no judicially issued search warrant had authorized the use of Pegasus on unwitting Americans by downloading data from their devices. And when congressional investigators got wind of these experiments, the Senate Intelligence Committee summoned FBI Director Christopher Wray to testify in secret about the acquisition and use of Pegasus. This is something he did back in December of 2021. 
He told the mostly pliant senators that the FBI only purchased Pegasus to be able to figure out how the bad guys could use it. Is that even believable? I mean, come on, that's right up there with the guy who gets caught surfing porn by his wife and his excuses. Well, I was looking to make sure there weren't pictures of you on here. Right, right. Or I was just doing research. <laughs> sure, FBI. Yeah, we're just trying to figure out how the bad guys might use it. Well, Judge Napolitano says in follow-up testimony in May of 2022, Ray elaborated that Pegasus was used as part of our routine responsibilities to evaluate technologies that are out there, not just from a perspective of could they be used someday legally, but also more important, what are the security concerns raised by those products? In other words, more FBI gibberish. Well, last week, dozens of internal FBI memos and court records told a very different story. A story that's caused Senator Ron Wyden, Democrat from Oregon, and a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee to question the veracity of Ray's testimony. Wyden's healthy skepticism caused the FBI reluctantly to reveal that it had ordered its own version of Pegasus called Phantom, which the Israelis tailor-made for hacking American mobile devices. Aren't you glad they're our ally? Sorry, you can't see, but that's in air quotes. Hmm. So here's the backstory. The Fourth Amendment to the Constitution was written to preserve the natural right to privacy and to cause law enforcement to focus on crimes rather than surveillance. The instrument of these purposes is the requirement of a judicially issued search warrant before government can engage in any surveillance. A search warrant can only be issued based on probable cause of crime demonstrated under oath to the issuing judge and showing that the place to be searched or person or thing to be seized is more likely than not to reveal evidence of crime. As well, the warrant must specifically describe the place to be searched and the things to be seized. So warrants can only be issued for investigations of actual crimes that have already occurred, not for experiments. Napolitano says the Fourth Amendment contains some of the most precise language in the Constitution, as it was written intentionally to thwart the rapacious appetite of governments to snoop which the British did to the colonists using general warrants. General warrants were not based on probable cause of crime and lacked all specificity. Instead, they were based on government need, a totalitarian standard because whatever the government wants, it will claim it needs. And they authorized the bearer to search wherever he wished and seize whatever he found. The Fourth Amendment was meant to put a stop to general warrants. As we know from the wildly unconstitutional FISA court and the NSA's secret criminal spying on all Americans, that amendment, like much of the Constitution, has failed abysmally to restrain the government. Now, back to the FBI and Phantom. In July 2021, President Joe Biden personally put a stop to the FBI's use of Phantom, and the Congressional Intelligence Committees assumed that was the end of it. Yet last week, when reporters revealed the results of, of Freedom of Information Act requests for memos and court documents pertaining to Phantom, a different story emerged. The documents that the FBI furnished show a vast determination by FBI management to showcase and deploy Phantom to FBI agents and other federal law enforcement personnel. Now, the procedures under which the House and Senate Intelligence Committees operate require that secrets be kept secret. Thus, when the FBI director testifies before those committees, the representatives and senators who hear testimony may not reveal what they heard to the press or even to their congressional colleagues. 
So Wyden has apparently had enough of law enforcement deception and secrecy. Hence, his complaints in letters to Ray, letters that more or less tell us what's going on. Now, all of this leaves us with an FBI out of control and run by a director who's been credibly accused of misleading Congress while under oath, a felony, and whose agents have been credibly accused of conspiracy to engage in computer hacking, also a felony. Who knows what other liberty-assaulting widgets the FBI has in its unconstitutional toolbox about which Wyden and his investigators have yet to learn. Now, Napolitano reminds us when Daniel Ellsberg courageously removed the Pentagon Papers from his office and gave them to reporters from the New York Times and the Washington Post, he was charged with espionage. The papers revealed that Pentagon generals were lying to President Lyndon B. Johnson and Johnson was lying to the public about the Vietnam War. During Ellsberg's trial, FBI agents broke into the office of his psychiatrist and stole his medical records so as to use them at trial. The federal judge presiding at the trial was so outraged by the FBI's misconduct that he dismissed the indictment against Ellsberg and the government did not appeal the dismissal. That sound familiar? Yeah, the name Bundy comes to mind when it comes to the the judge being outraged and dismissing it to where they wouldn't even pursue it again. Well, the Ellsberg break-in took the FBI a few hours. It was destructive and dangerous. Today's FBI could have done the Ellsberg heist remotely in just a few minutes. Today's FBI has agents who are the bad guys they warned us about. Today's FBI has morphed from a crime-fighting to crime-anticipating organization. He says today's FBI is effectively a domestic spying operation, nowhere sanctioned in the Constitution. And Judge Napolitano says it should be defunded and disbanded. By the way, I don't know if you saw it, but there was uh, quite an exchange with the FBI director and a couple of different uh, senators. Actually, one representative and one senator. Rand Rand Paul was the senator, and I think uh, Representative Higgins was the representative, questioning Ray about uh, things that were going on on January 6th. In particular, were there federal assets, meaning confidential informants, undercover agents, or whatever, in the Capitol prior to the public, you know, finding its way in? He couldn't answer it. He wouldn't answer it. The answer should have been very clearly, no. Either yes or no. That's the kind of question that was asked. But instead, he hemmed and hawed and took out his top hat and his tap shoes and danced a beautiful number without ever getting to the answer to that question. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, that should probably tell us something, right? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Got to mention GarageDoorProServices.com. Serving St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, Colorado City. Basically all that beautiful area of color country in southwestern Utah and northern Arizona and uh, north or southeastern Nevada. Sorry. Have to actually stop and think a little bit about where everything's located. Bottom line, though, is if you need garage door installation, service, and repair, talk to Garage Door Pros. You can call them at 435-525-2773. Better still, go to their website at garagedoorproservices.com. 
And if by chance you do business with them, please let them know that you heard about them right here on this program. Man, I'm really hoping my voice is going to hold up through today's show because it, it is, it's hanging by a thread. I've been uh, working it very hard here lately, <laughs> kind of abusing it, and now uh, I'm, I'm starting to pay the price. But I have some important information to share. I'm going to do my best to share that with you today. Um, this, is a, this is an article that really grabbed my attention, and it just gets, to, it gets back to the idea we should have listened to George Washington when he warned us in his farewell address about the dangers of faction. Tom McAllister says, here we are a week after the 2022 elections, still in the fog of ballot counting. A nation who put a man on the moon half a century ago somehow cannot tally the votes of the people in a day. He says, read into that what you wish. Over at Conservative Treehouse, site owner Sundance, Sundance rather, provides an excellent article distinguishing the difference between ballots and votes. Votes are the expressed intention of a voter for a particular government leader. Ballots are filled out pieces of paper that express the choice of a particular leader. Both are counted for an election. So in the current system, ballots are gathered or harvested either legally or illegally and submitted. Given the lack of prosecution, the legality of it apparently doesn't matter. Votes represent the will of the people. Ballots may or may not. That's an interesting description. It actually makes sense, too. Now, Tom McAllister says this disenfranchising process could not happen if one political party vehemently opposed it. Another excellent must-read article by Dan Galertner on American Greatness observes that the fault lies not with the particular political party, but with all the politicians, to include their supporting cast of donors. It's not a grand coordinated conspiracy based on an ideology. It follows the fractal pattern of self-organization with a common motivation, greed. Now, he says, our first president, George Washington, provided a warning of the eventual power political parties could attain. In his farewell address, Washington cautioned, however, political parties may now and then answer popular ends. They are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterward the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. Gosh, that just makes me want to stop for a moment and just marvel at how insightful George Washington was. Because what he's describing sure seems to be playing out before us today. Anyway, moving on with the article. Tom McAllister says, We, the people, see two opposing political parties with competing platforms, governing ideals, and value systems. How scary is the thought that despite their opposing rhetoric, they secretly collaborate based on mutual self-interest and greed? The concept of never let a crisis go to waste has now been advanced to create a string of crises. Inflation, debt, gas and diesel shortages, rampant illegal immigration, child grooming, transgenderism, etc. That are keeping the nation in a chaotic environment such that more funding of corrupt projects and controlling government laws can be passed. He says one political party pushes it while the other raises money to oppose it. Yet they both profit off it and could not care less about the outcome. In a global environment of food and energy scarcities, the greatest shortage in America today is the integrity of our leadership. Now, our second president, John Adams, spoke of this. 
He warned, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution is designed only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for any other. Tom McAllister says if one is able to override their personal cognitive bias and motivated reasoning, then it's easy to see the fishy results of the last two elections and recognize that we have a whale of a problem. Using Alexander Teitler's life cycle of a republic, the U.S. has cycled through the phases of spiritual faith, great courage, liberty, and abundance. We could not handle our own prosperity. Pride replaced humility and entitlement supplanted gratitude. Thus, we have sadly continued into selfishness, complacency, and apathy, and are now into the dependence phase. The next and final phase is bondage, where freedom dies. Today, roughly half of our populace receives government assistance. Our national debt exceeds $30 trillion. A 30 tr- or rather a trillion $1 bills laid end-to-end would go past the distance to our sun. At $30 trillion, Let's just say we're way past Uranus in debt. Soon our debt will not just be out of this world, but actually out of our solar system. Now he says, in the history of mankind, no republic has ever recovered from this state. However, the United States is no ordinary republic. If we adhere to Adam's warning and return to our founding worldview of humble dependence upon our creator and supreme judge for our providence then this cycle can bypass the inevitable bondage phase and return to spiritual faith. Tom McAllister says, With God, all things are possible. We must demand and pursue truth with fervent energy in every aspect of our lives. As Augustine opined, all truth is God's truth. If we, the people who are called by his name, will humble ourselves and pray, seek his face and repent of our wicked ways, then God will hear our prayer, forgive our sin, and restore our land. Now, that's a promise from our Creator, and we believe it or not. We either believe it or not, rather. There's no one in the country who is ignorant of God. There are many, however, who ignore Him, and that never bodes well for a nation. Our decision in how we respond will determine the destiny of our republic. And despite our trajectory of impending doom, there is a precedent, an incident in human history where a nation repented and turned itself around, and it too had some fishiness surrounding it, as it happened in the city-state of Nineveh about uh, 140 score years ago. Remember this one? A man named Jonah preached a one-sentence sermon. Now that's efficiency to the wicked people there. He said, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The pagan city's response? And the Ninevites believed God. They proclaimed a fast. They dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And because of their faith, God spared their nation. Tom McAllister says, we the people must recognize the urgency of our situation and take appropriate action before we descend into bondage. This may be our last chance before being hooked into unmitigated disaster. Now, I've got a link to this in the show notes, and I I get, you know, not everybody is, is going to respond favorably to the idea that, all right, now we're getting into religious stuff here. But I'll just put my cards on the table and tell you, I really do believe that, uh, that, first of all, God had a hand in the establishment of this nation. And I'm not saying, that, you know, this is uh, supposed to be a theocracy, you know, kind of like Iran. I'm saying that there is something very precious 
about the gift of liberty. And I believe it's the greatest gift that God can give us in that that's where we are allowed to make our choices. Now, we have to take the consequences that come with those choices. But free will is so important to God's purposes and plans, at least according to my understanding, that we cannot improve, we cannot grow, we cannot become without it. And liberty is a key part of it. And I know from firsthand experience that uh, God loves liberty. As in, it's not just like, yeah, it's, you know, it's cool, do whatever you want. It's like, no, it's a gift, but it's only a gift for those people who are qualified to have it. If you squander it, if you turn your back on him, if it just becomes all about, uh, you know, hedonistic living, liberty will not stick around. We're kind of experiencing this in a big way, and it may get even bigger. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for giving this program a chance. If you're a first-time listener, hopefully I haven't scared you too much. Boy, he's really pounding the pulpit today. Actually, my voice is hanging on by a thread, and I'm just really hoping that uh, that I can continue to the end of the program because I really do have some some terrific content to share with you today. Now, I'm, I'm going to keep on... Uh, uh, kind of theme that I was on in the last segment, and that is a little bit of a a religious or at least a spiritual aspect of what's going on. And, And in full disclosure, I believe all the conflicts that we see today are part of a much larger conflict that has been taking place eternally between light and darkness. I think it's just a continuation of that conflict. The names and the faces may have changed. The dynamics have not. I've got a great article here from Anthony Esselin. This is from American Greatness about uh, reflecting on the new sins and the old. This has a lot to do with after God is driven out of our civic life. He says, you don't have a real civic life. You have a mockery of it. This is how Anthony Esselin puts it. He says, the other day I made a comment on antisocial media to the effect that you should read old books because their characteristic errors will not be your errors and they will show you things that are good and true and beautiful, which you may have forgotten. It's only what C.S. Lewis and plenty of writers devoted to the old arts have said before me. In fact, he says it shouldn't be controversial. In fact, anyone who really believes in cultural diversity should welcome it because in this regard, the past is like a foreign country where you go to be charmed by and instructed by a way of life very different from your own. Now that includes, too, a view of the sins of people in days gone by by which we are sometimes pleased to look upon with horror, forgetting that we have our own sins to repent, if we can be led to even recognize that they're sins at all. Augustine's friend, Olypius, I noted, was a remarkably gentle and compassionate young man, but he got hooked on the gladiatorial games against his better judgment and will. The frenzy, the terrible excitement, all the more potent because of its wickedness, turned his head one day when some of his friends, teasing and cajoling him, dragged him to the arena, and there he kept his eyes shut fast until a roar came up from the crowd just when one of the fighters was slaying his opponent. Olypius looked up and was fascinated, we might say possessed. Only the grace of God would later tear that fascination out of his heart. Now, Anthony Esselin says, I, later, I further said that most of the evil done in the world 
just by the sheer force of numbers, is performed by nice people engaging in the ordinary evils of their time or giving way to the kinds of selfishness and hard-heartedness each person finds most comfortable or profitable for himself. The implication is that we commit evils peculiar to our time too, as wicked as what the Romans indulged in and that nice people will likewise fill the stands. And then someone responded, evidently thinking about his favorite forms of sexual release, that nice people in our time deny other people's humanity and use the ballot box to force their delusions of God on everyone else. Anthony Eslin says, I don't think he perceived that he had proved my point. He wanted to vilify people who hold to a vision of sexual morality that, within living memory, was just about universal, even among liberals themselves. Such people, he implied, were denying his humanity. That is nonsense. He says, I recall the words of the king of Brobdingnag after Gulliver had described him to him, rather, the ways of European countries and their cultures, that his people must be the most odious race of pernicious little vermin that nature ever suffered to crawl upon the face of the earth. That's a large part of our humanity right there. We are proud, vain, envious, and self-absorbed. We hoard what we do not need to the harm of others. We lie and we excuse ourselves for our lies. We cheat. We covet. We treat divine things as if they were contemptible and contemptible things as if they were divine. We neglect our children. We scoff at our parents. And we roll in lust like pigs in slop. So if I say, you should not do such and such, I imply that I should not do that either or some other thing that happens to catch me where I'm weak. He says, I'm not denying anyone's humanity. I'm affirming it in two ways. I'm saying, welcome to the club of sinners, and the moral laws that govern our lives are the same, regardless of what we think of them. We are not gods. Which brings me to the other thing the young man said. Clearly, he does not want to read old books, since they undoubtedly will come from times and places in which his sin, the sin by which he identifies himself, was either condemned or looked upon as petty or ridiculous. He does not want to admit that he has anything to learn by stepping outside of his self-built moral mansion, a kind of well-decorated and comfortable prison house. But as soon as he says so, he implies that he has denied his own humanity. He has made himself out to be a god, determining good and evil for himself, at least in that one realm of the moral life where he has staked what he believes is his identity. That's why the very idea of God threatens him. For the only human beings in our time whose very humanity is denied in principle and as a matter of public law are the unborn. And many people, most of them religious but not all, most of them politically conservative but not all, have been fighting for years to have their humanity recognized and protected. It may be the most important reason why the Republicans fared poorly in the last election. Try to imagine a Roman emperor saying to the people, you will get your bread, but I'm shutting down the circuses because they are immoral and inhuman. Think of all the people whose livelihoods depend on those games. It isn't only sex that sells. All kinds of bad things sell. Who profits from the fraying and collapse of stable family life in our time? Well, the answer is a lot of people profit. He says, my interlocutor profits in this way. He gets to do what he pleases, regardless of the implications for raising boys and girls who will be attracted to one another in the natural way of mankind and who will exercise the virtues that give them the best chance for a permanent and happy marriage. But you'll have a hard time trying to persuade someone walled up in his mansion to step outside and to think about the whole of his society. That was the case with Ebenezer Scrooge and his law-abiding but immoral and wicked avarice. 
And that is the case now with other kinds of Scrooges, not so stately dressed and are peculiar law-abiding but immoral and wicked lusts. And yet you must take that step and let the old books help you. If you're going to be free, even if you and your fellows are going to be any kind of society at all, you must leave behind the self-made identity, the little God in the mirror. And Anthony Eslin says to acknowledge God as the giver of law is to step down from the throne where you yourself are playing at deity. And since most people are not so aggressive at that game, to knock from their thrones those among us, always the worst, who want to remake the whole world in their own image and subject everyone to the ghastly pretense Great haters, great haters, rather, of both God and man. Like Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, and Mao, and anyone in our midst whose vast wealth and power give him the odd notion that he is called to save the world from our old liberties and old pieties. So Anthony Eslin says, yes, I will acknowledge God in my civic life because I want to have a real civic life and not a mockery of it. And because the alternative is no society, but a numbed collective of half-men serving an array of petty gods as mortal and foolish as they themselves are. And he says, and I will read the old books too, because they will often be wise where I am not. Now, hopefully that doesn't sound too much like, boy, you're sure preaching to us today, trying to make me feel guilty. That's not the point. The point is we really do have a lot to learn from what came before us. And yes, those old books, I, you know, I, I think it was C.S. Lewis who talked about you know, chronological snobbery, and that's the belief that, well, we know so much in our day that nobody has a better understanding of the world than we do. And I really believed that at one point in time. There was a time where I believed, oh, yes, you know, people like Socrates and so forth. Yeah, you know, they just went around wearing their togas, and maybe they gestured to the sky as they were orating and feeding on grapes or whatever. But I always kind of saw them as just, you know, civilized, but primitive. They didn't think beyond, they were like well-dressed cavemen, essentially, is what I thought. That changed, actually, the, the day that I picked up the uh, uh, Platonic uh, dialogues and started to read Plato for the first time and started to realize, holy cow, there have been people who have been working at thinking through the issues and the principles and the ideas and ideals of mankind for thousands of years. We're talking billions and billions of brains, some of them extremely accomplished thinkers, trying to figure out what is it about good versus evil? What is it about slavery and its rightness or wrongness? What brings happiness? What is the definition of a life that's well-lived? And reluctantly, I came to realize, you know, my my own thinking is pitiful. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a... The, one of those uh, D-cell flashlights we had as kids compared to a brilliant spotlight. These guys really thought about things seriously. And yeah, they had their blind spots. I mean, for crying out loud, Aristotle just defended slavery. Well, some people are born to be slaves and some are born to be masters. That's the way it is. How could I sit and think as I do if <laughs> I didn't have somebody to do the chores? But you can still learn a lot from them. You can learn from their mistakes, you can learn from the things they got right, but most of all, you can learn to be just a little bit humble, because absolutely, we have our blind spots as well. And most definitely, there will be people, hundreds or perhaps thousands of years from now, examining the lives that we lived and thinking to themselves, how the hell could they be so blind? So maybe we should focus on uh, 
fixing some of our own mistakes. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, a shout out here for lifesavingfood.com, hslammo.com, and monticellocollege.org. These sponsors help to make my program possible. Anything you do to support them or even just give them feedback and let them know, hey, I heard Brian talking about you, is very, very appreciated. So I want to talk a little bit about money. I don't know if you've heard the rumors, but uh, don't look now. There's a new digital currency on the horizon. In fact, a number of the bigger banks here in America admitted, we're going to try a 12-week pilot program and see how this works out. I'm going to go on the record right now and say, you know, uh, fiat currency is one thing. One of the reasons we have the inflation that we have right now, and one of the reasons that uh, you see your dollar purchasing less and less every single time you go to the store has everything to do with the fact that it's fiat currency. It's not real money. We use it as money because, well, legal tender laws force us to, but most of what we consider money exists in the form of electrons. I mean, it used to be notations on a ledger sheet. Very seldom do you find anybody using cash. And even then, that cash is nothing more than pieces of paper in which our belief is, well, it holds value. This holds $20 of value. That holds $5 of value. You see the point. Digital currency, that's a pretty dangerous place to go. But that's where we're going. And with digital currency comes all the disadvantages of fiat with all the advantages that enable absolute government control of your spending, your taxation, everything you do. So maybe it's a good time to check out what real money is. And I got a great article here from, again, this is uh, Stephen Apolito, published on intellectualtakeout.org. What I learned from my grandfather about money. Stephen says, when I was a child, my mother and I would take the Long Island Railroad to Brooklyn to see relatives a few times a year. My grandfather was always outside in front of the apartment house in Park Slope, where he and my aunts and uncles lived. Upon seeing him, I would run down the sidewalk to greet him, but before I could say hi, Grandpa, he would without fail press a shiny silver dollar into my hand. He was a quiet, dignified man with a big white mustache. Since he spoke hardly any English and I spoke hardly any Italian, we had to make do with silent monetary exchanges like these. He gave me shiny silver dollars and I took and spent them. Now, since this was back in the 50s, a dollar, silver or otherwise would buy a whole afternoon of fun. I could take in a double feature at the movies, buy a bag of popcorn and a baby Ruth, and still have change. He says, the silver dollars I got from my grandfather looked like the one above, and he's got a picture to, to illustrate it. He says, I later learned that the peace dollar, as it was called, was designed by the Italian immigrant and sculptor Antonio de Francisi to commemorate the end of World War I. The model for the image of Lady Liberty that adorns the face or obverse of the coin was his wife, Teresa. On the coin's reverse appears a perched bald eagle above the word peace. And he says, after my grandfather died, I often wondered if he had known the history of that coin. The peace dollar was minted for circulation from 1921 to 1928 and again from 1934 to 1935. It was the last silver dollar minted for circulation. In its final year, 3,540,000 peace dollars were minted. 
Each coin weighed 26.73 grams and contained 0.77344 troy ounces of silver. With silver trading at almost $20 an ounce as of November 2nd of 2022, the melt value of each piece dollar is more than 15 times its face value. Now, the piece dollar, like the Morgan dollar that preceded it, was not a popular coin except perhaps with my grandfather and me. And he says millions of such coins sat in bank vaults across the country. Its size and weight made it inconvenient for use as a general medium of exchange. Most people preferred instead to carry paper money, which they could fold and slip inside their wallets. Now, Stephen Apolitos says, look, I didn't have a wallet back then. I, did, I liked the sound and the feel of a silver dollar jingling in my pocket. But despite their unpopularity, silver and gold coins played an important role in our nation's monetary history until America finally abandoned both. First gold for domestic transactions in 1933, then silver in 1962, and finally gold for international transactions in 1971. America, like the rest of the world, had abandoned both the gold and silver monetary standards and resorted to the printing of fiat currency, money by government edict having no intrinsic value. To understand the significance of this change, he says, look at a 1928 U.S. paper dollar and compare it with today's paper money. You'll notice that this dollar is called a silver certificate, not a Federal Reserve note. And the difference in wording is not just semantics. For beneath the title on the dollar bill, we are informed, this certifies that there has been deposited in the Treasury of the United States one silver dollar payable to the bearer on demand. So the silver dollars, like the ones my grandfather gave me, he says, were not just sitting idle in dark bank vaults taking up space. Quite the contrary. These silver dollars gave validity to our paper money and served as sentinels, lest government officials took it into their heads to print more money than could be redeemed in silver coins. For when the public became suspicious that the government is counterfeiting money, they could simply show up at their local banks early one Monday morning and demand silver dollars in exchange for their silver certificates. Such a run on banks could lead to a financial panic, forcing many banks to close their doors, an event nobody wanted. He says for centuries, silver and gold thus served to limit the excesses of government borrowing and spending. As a result, both metals are the natural enemies of expensive, of expansive governments whose appetite for money can never be sated. And governments almost everywhere despise gold and silver for that very reason, referring to them as barbaric relics of the past. But Stephen Apolito says, make no mistake, these two relics of the past, while no friends of tyranny, are precious in the eyes of all those who, like my grandfather, loved freedom. He says, in the last days of the Roman Empire, a Roman citizen fleeing the capital city before its fall in A.D. 410, which plunged Western civilization into an economic abyss for lasting for centuries, may well have remarked, boy, I'm, I'm not good with Latin, but here goes, primo deformaverunt monetum nostrum, tunc vitam nostrum duxerunt. First they debased our currency, then they debased our lives. That the two are so intimately connected is an economic truth that even today, is not widely understood. Now, I'm not trying to cause you anxiety by sharing this article with you, but there's an awful lot of truth there. And and as, as we see our monetary system straining 
under the incredible amount of spending and the printing of dollars and the release of trillions and trillions of dollars that have been put into the economy. What was it, something like $30 trillion in in just a a very short period of time? Yeah, it's, uh, wait, $7 trillion, I think, in uh, 30 months, I think is, is, is what we saw. Bottom line is, when the money supply is inflated like that, the purchasing dollar or the purchasing power of each dollar goes down correspondingly. It's watered down. It's like adding drops of water to a pitcher of Kool-Aid. The more you add, the weaker the Kool-Aid is going to be. And I think we are on the cusp of seeing the dollar done away with, or at least the the form of the dollar that, that we're used to. And what we're going to be pitched for convenience and safety is this uh, central bank digital currency. This is going to bring some really tough decisions because it will bring absolute control. You know, we hear the word fascism a lot today, but uh, I'm telling you, electronic fascism is something that we will get to experience firsthand if you're committed to living as a free individual. How so? Because with a central bank digital currency, Government will have the ability to essentially make you an unperson by turning off your access to your money. They can already do it in many ways today. Think about what happened to the Canadian truckers earlier this year when they were protesting over the COVID lockdowns. Their bank accounts were shut down. Even donations that were sent to help them were confiscated. This is much, much deeper this goes to the individual level. And, and the World Economic Forum, among others, they brag about, oh, yes, it'll track all of your spending. It'll track what you're eating. It'll track, you know, what you're doing and, and check your carbon score. And if you're doing something that is deemed, well, you know, that could be harmful to the client. Well, guess what? You don't get to buy gas from here on out, you know, for the rest of the month. Sorry, you're going to be taking the Shoe Leather Express. Or worse, if you're like me, you know, a, a, a troublemaker of sorts maybe it's just turned off good luck brian have fun trying to buy groceries when you're an unperson because your your money is no good now i understand that sounds paranoid oh it would never get to that but you know what after we went through over after what we went through over the last three years if you can look at that and say oh it's you know completely out of the question they would never go there how many things did we have to put up with in the last two and a half years that we thought man it would never get that bad You see what I'm saying? Never say never. And never underestimate the capacity for some people to throw freedom 100% under the bus. This is The Brian Hyde Show.